dependence. We've been talking about dependence over the last several weeks, and through the month of January, Pastor Seth did such a wonderful job in this series unfolding the the passage in Matthew chapter 6, which we're going to look at here in a moment, and talking about dependence through the prism, through the, the lens of the Lord's Prayer, or what he's been calling the Disciples' Prayer. And so we're going to conclude that today by talking about it with, with the kind of a, it almost appears like a little tag-along to the Lord's Prayer that we read here in, in Matthew chapter 6 about fasting, about fasting. And so I have to admit, you know, at the outset, I am not a good faster. Um, I don't know if there's any fasting warriors out there. That is not me. And uh, I, I'm just going to admit that on the outset. I'm going to be speaking about things today that are far above me. I enjoy food. I, I, fat, the, the practice, the discipline of fasting that we're going to be talking about today rarely enters my mind. And it does not sound appealing most of the time. But I have to say, as I've been studying for this week, it's been very convicting. It's been very convicting, and so I hope that as we kind of look at this discipline here this morning, it will be convicting to many of you as well. But as we think about fasting, I want to kind of put it into the context of what we've been studying. So let's read the passage that we've been going over the past several weeks and kind of get the picture here of what we're talking about. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and we'll go to verse 18. Here we go. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That's their motivation. They want to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Then here's our verse for today. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So last night, my wife and I had the opportunity to go and have dinner with some friends and we were doing anything but fasting. We, we went to a new sushi place over off of Rayford Sawdust where they have an all-you-can-eat sushi menu. And so we hadn't seen these friends in about 10 years. It had been a long time, and they're, they're great people. They are folks who 
had been mentors. They're about 10 years ahead of my wife and I, and they had been good mentors to us early in our marriage, and we had gone through some difficult times. They had been there for us to speak wisdom into our lives, and so it was a good opportunity to catch up. And as we were having dinner with them, he began to tell us a story that had happened this past Christmas. Uh, sometime in, in November, he had lost his job, a difficult uh, and stressful event for anybody. And then at about the same time, because of incredible pain in his hip, he had had hip replacement surgery. And it was, the, the, the doctor apparently described this hip replacement surgery as a violent ordeal. It's tough, difficult surgery that left him in considerable pain after he was uh, after the surgery, and so here he is, having recently lost his job in considerable pain from this, this difficult hip replacement surgery. And he was praying the whole time. You know, he, when you lose, something like that happens, when you go through a stressful event, you start to pray, right? Stress often leads to us calling out to God for relief. And so he was doing that, and he has this pain from the, the hip, and he gets the surgery. He's got the pain of the recovery. He's praying through that. And then about five days before Christmas, he explains that he began to feel pain in his chest and shortness of breath. And of course, he prayed about that, right? He's at home and he's praying about this pain in his chest and the shortness of breath. And he, he realizes pretty quickly he has an elevated heart rate. He, he's a pretty fit guy. And so normally his heart rate's in the 60s, low 70s, and it's, it's consistently above 100 so it's concerning. So as he's sitting there at his house, he's praying that, you know, maybe I can do some breathing and, and some meditation and, and this will go away, but it doesn't, it persists. So his wife decides, he and his wife decide they're going to go to the emergency room. So they pile in the car, he and his wife and their, their son who's in college get in the car together and they decide to go to the emergency room. And there at the emergency room, he describes the experience of him praying that, you know, I hope we get in to see quick, I hope they see us really quickly. That doesn't happen as emergency rooms are. You typically have to wait a long time in the emergency room. So he's sitting there for a long time. When they finally get him back into the room, he's, he's hoping and he's been praying that maybe they'll just be able to give me something to, to take away this, you know, this symptom that I'm feeling. And the doctors who are coming in to look at him, they, they can't really explain why this might be taking place, but they're very concerned. So they decide, well, we need to do some tests. We need to take some images of your chest. We need to figure out what's going on. So they take him down to the imaging department, and the whole time he's praying that, I hope nothing serious is going on. I hope these images come back and everything looks normal and okay. And, of course, they get him back into the, the, the room where he is, and the doctors come in, and they say, oh, it's, it's pretty serious. We're going to um, we're gonna need to admit you for the night. He's disappointed. He's like, oh, he's like, I've been praying that, you know, they'd be able to figure this out and I'd be able to go home. I don't want to stay here for the night. And so they wheel him into the room. They get him in his gown. He's, he's there for, for the evening. And uh, he says, he describes this, this feeling at this point, having gone through the loss of a job, having had this difficult hip issue, having had the surgery that was very, very difficult, having gone through all these experiences throughout the day as he'd been praying and praying and praying and praying. He got to this point at this moment where he's just been admitted to the hospital where he says to himself, what point? 
is there praying anymore. Nothing's been answered. Nothing's been answered. And about that moment, the doctor walks in, and as the doctor walks in, he, he comes in, he's talking on the phone, and he can hear the doctor's conversation on the phone. He's saying, yeah, the patient is in distress. We're going to have to go into surgery immediately. And he hears this, and he thinks, wow, I wonder who, what you know, poor guy they're talking about. And as he's thinking that, the doctor walks right over to him, and he says, hey, I'm going to need to have you sign these forms. He's like, we're going to need to go into surgery immediately. You've got about an hour to live unless we operate. And so, you know, all of a sudden, his world is turned upside down, and all of a sudden, he realizes that he's in a fight for his life. And what he describes at that moment is he's standing, sitting there, he's laying there in the bed, and he sees his wife, and he sees his son there hearing this news along with him, and he sees their faces go white. And he says some things to him, it'll be all right, it'll be all right, I'm sure everything's going to be okay. And as they're wheeling him out of the room, suddenly his focus tunnels to a very narrow issue. His prayer tunnels to something very specific. And he, he says he, he wasn't concerned about himself at that moment. What filled his mind at that moment was the image of his son and of his wife and wondering, are they going to be okay? And his prayers change. They change from, I just want to go home, just want to find a job, I just want to not have this pain in my hip anymore. They shift focus very clearly to, God, take care of my son. Take care of my kids. Take care of my wife. Now, obviously, this story has a happy ending. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had dinner last night, right? But what I want to draw out of that story is this. Suffering and prayer are intimately connected. They are intimately connected. They go hand in hand. C.S. Lewis said that we can ignore pleasure, okay, we can ignore pleasure, but pain, suffering, insists on being attended to. We can't ignore it. We can't ignore it. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us through our conscience, right? When we do something wrong and, and we feel guilt about it, we, we hear the voice of God in that. But He screams to us. He's, he shouts to us in our pain. It's His megaphone. Suffering is a megaphone that gets our attention, that focuses us to what's really important. So, as the story continues, the doctors had discovered a large blood clot in my friend's chest, a blood clot that essentially filled his entire right lung. The doctors, after they performed the surgery, which was successful, came in and told them, we, we honestly did not think you would make it. The doctor said, I have never removed a blood clot from somebody that big, and they've survived. And so, he, afterwards, after he's processed through all this, he, he, he remembers back to that moment in which he had, you know, thought to himself, what good is prayer? He's not answering any of them. 
And afterwards, with the ability to have hindsight, he was able to look back and see God had been answering my prayers all along. Just as we read here, he knew what I need even before I had opened my mouth, and he was taking care of me. I was right where I needed to be, right at the moment I needed to be there. But he thought about the unbelief that had come out in the moment when he had thought in his mind, God is just not answering these prayers. It had exposed something in him, something deep within him. He's a lifelong Christian, but it had exposed something of unbelief in him that had come out through the suffering. See, pain and suffering are intimately related to prayer. And as we talk about fasting today, here's what I want you, here's the first point that I want you to understand. Fasting hurts. Fasting involves intentional suffering and deprivation. Fasting hurts. It's intentional suffering and deprivation that we undergo. Now, virtually all examples of fasting that we find in the Bible involve food. We're going to talk about why that is in a moment. But in, there are other types of fast that we have become familiar with in our day, right? I mean, we often talk about fasting in our day, and we, you know, think about maybe, maybe, maybe you grew up in a Catholic tradition, and you think of Lent, and you think of, you know, giving up something. Uh, maybe you give up meats on Fridays, or, or maybe you give up something, you know, now more modern versions of that, or to give up TV for, the, for a month, or to give up... Um, you know, your phone or, or technology of some kind or to, to do a modified fast, maybe to do, give up sugar for a period of time. And those are fine. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to diminish those types of activities, but I do want to draw a distinction that I think is important, okay? And the distinction that I'm going to draw here between, is between a fast, which is the intentional undertaking of suffering for a higher purpose and self-help. Okay, I want to distinguish those two things. And I think to illustrate that, I think we can all understand when I say there's a difference between a fast and, say, a diet, right? Okay. Maybe we have some goal in our lives where we say, you know what, I've, I need to lose 15 pounds. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut out certain foods or I'm going to cut out sugar or something like that so that... I can benefit in some way because this is good for me ultimately, and, and I need to lose the 15 pounds, okay? That's fundamentally different than what we are going to be talking about today. That's beneficial. That's self-help. That's discipline. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But that's not what we have in view here with a fast. It's not what we're talking about here today. And so oftentimes when we think of, you know, some of the modern fasts, like I'm going to give up my phone or I'm going to give up, uh, you know, TV for a period of time. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But oftentimes the result of that activity, right, of putting away social media for a season or, or not uh, being so connected to technology is we actually feel better, right? Feel better. We realize in those moments how much we are suffering because of our over-reliance on social media or because we are too connected and we need to have some of that opportunity, some of that space. We feel better about it. That's not, again, what we're talking about here. Today we are talking about an intentional suffering for a higher purpose. 
So the only exception in Scripture to a fast for related to food that, we, that I'm aware of, and maybe somebody will educate me uh, later if they can find something else or they find in Scripture a different type of fast, but the only one that's not related to fast or to food is the one we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, Paul is, is talking to married couples. He's talking about marriage here. And he's talking about singleness versus marriage in this context. And we hear that we, we read this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5. He's talking to husbands and wives now. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, what he's talking about there is husbands and wife, wives and intimacy, right? He's talking about uh, sexual intimacy. He's talking about coming together as husbands and wives, not depriving each other of conjugal rights, right? So he's talking about that kind of a fast. And obviously, this kind of fast is also connected to prayer because he says, you can do this for a little while, and I'm going to highlight the little while there, right, Uh, for a specific purpose to pray, but then come back together again right? So that you don't tempt one another, so that you're not tempted, right? So that's a type of fast. That's the only other reference to a type of fast in Scripture that I'm aware of that does not have to do with food. So primarily what we're talking about here as we talk about fasting is we're talking about food. And why is that? Why is that? Okay. It's not random. It's not just, it's not just a pick something to go without. There, there's reasons for that, and we want to understand the reasons for that. And I think the reasons for that are very basic, very fundamental, very spiritual. Okay. There are a few things that we need more of than food. It's something that we need consistently, every day, right? It's a need. And as we go back to the beginning, as we go back to Genesis, and we consider the situation in the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden, and the first human is created, God places Adam into a garden. And as Adam is placed into the garden, the one thing that's made very, very clear is that Adam was completely taken care of food-wise. He was given this entire garden from which he could draw his sustenance, from which he could eat. He could eat from any tree in the garden. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, God says this, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so here in the garden, God has provided with man everything that he needs. He's completely taken care of. God gives man a purpose. He tells man to tend this garden. He gives man food so that he can be sustained in this task. And he gives man a helper, the woman, to help him in that task. All of Adam's physical or exterior needs have been taken care of. 
Seth talked last week about the reality, about the fact that God does not tempt anyone, right? But He does test. He tests men. We read in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. In Proverbs 17.3, we read, the refining pot is for silver. The refining pot is where you melted down the silver. It's where you, where you tested the silver to see its purity. And as you melted down the, the, the metal, the impurities rose to the top, right? And you could see how impure this particular silver was. And the same is true with the furnace. He says, and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests the heart. How does the Lord test the heart? How does He do that? He puts us into situations where what's in us rises to the surface, comes out. He's not the one doing the tempting. As James said, as Pastor Seth talked about last, as James said, what's inside of us is what pulls us away. We are pulled away to sin and to do evil when what's inside of us comes out, when God puts us in the test. It's not God doing the tempting, but it is God doing the testing. And here in Genesis chapters 3, we see the test. We see the test. Now, one thing you'll, you'll notice in the book of Genesis, the first three chapters, is that the first two chapters, who's the main actor? Who's ever present in the first two chapters? It's God. God is the one doing everything, right? God is the one who is creating the heavens and the earth. God is the one who's creating the man in chapter 2. God is the one who's giving him purpose. God is the one who's making the woman. God is the main actors in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the interesting thing that you see is that in chapter 3, something changes. Something changes. Suddenly, there are three people involved. There's three actors involved. None of them are God. There's the serpent which we'll read about in just a minute. There's the woman, and then there's Adam. How will they interact when God is not there? God comes later, but how will they interact when He's not with them? We'll find that out as we, as we look at Genesis chapter 3. We see, we read this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. We're introduced to this creature, the serpent, okay? And the serpent, as we know from the book of Revelation, is Satan. In Revelation chapter 19 and 20, Satan is referred to that serpent of old, right? The serpent that was there in the garden from the beginning. And so we see this, this serpent who's described as the craftiest, the most the brilliant one, the, the, the one who, who comes and he's got, this, he's got this craftiness to him, this, this thing that appears like wisdom, but it's got something else behind it. That, that word crafty is, is more menacing than wisdom, right? When we call somebody crafty, we're usually not saying a good thing about them. They're crafty. The test comes at the Word of God. 
this crafty serpent, comes to Eve, and this is what we read. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And notice the first move that he makes. He misrepresents what God had said. And God said that, of course not. God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden. But the serpent attacks. Did God really say? And then he, he's testing to see if she knows what the Word of God is, right? And he gets a response. The woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And I think what Satan probably notices here in this response is that Eve, although clearly it has been communicated to her by Adam, because Adam was the only one present in the garden when God gave him the command. So clearly it had been communicated to her at some point what the rule was. She adds to it just a little, just a little. She adds to it because did God ever say they couldn't touch the tree? No, just that they couldn't eat from the tree. So I think Satan, sensing a chink in the armor, sensing that something is flawed there, goes in for the kill. And he says in verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he goes from misrepresenting the Word of God to test if she knew to outright denial of the Word of God. And then we read her response like this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Loin and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden. Okay. Here comes back God. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So there we have it. There's the response. The, the attack is on the veracity of the Word of God. Now, what's interesting to, to note here, obviously, is that Adam, this whole time, apparently has just been standing there. He's the one who the command had been given to, and he's just standing there with his wife. He says right here that he was with her, right? And he's listening to this dialogue. And he does nothing. He does nothing. And the response that we read about from the woman is that this, she looks at the fruit, she hears what the serpent is saying, she knows some of what God has said would happen, and she chooses not to believe what she has been told, the Word of God, and she substitutes that judgment the judgment of the one who created everything for her own judgment. 
Because to her, from her perspective, the food, it looks like it's good for food, right? Now, it doesn't matter that she has food aplenty. That's not what she needs. But this looks like it's good for food. It looks desirable to the eyes. It looks good to me, right? And it looks like it'll benefit me. The, the serpent's telling me this will make me wise. So, substituting her own judgment for the Word of God, she takes the fruit, she eats it, she gives it to her husband who says nothing, and he eats it. And then they see themselves for who they are. They feel exposed, right? They feel naked. And what's going on there, this, this nakedness that they feel is more than just a physical nakedness. Their hearts had been exposed. Jesus had tested them, and He had tested them so that it would be obvious what is in their hearts, what is inside them, who they really are. And as they sin, as they break God's command, suddenly they know who they are. They see who they are. They see the wickedness in their own heart. They see the, the sin in themselves, and they feel exposed. We now know who we are. We feel ashamed, and we run and we hide. And I often wonder, could it have ended there? If when they, they hear God walking in the cool of the morning, could it have ended there if Adam had simply come out and said, oh man, I messed up. I know who I am. I see now. Yeah, I do know good and evil. God, you are good and I am evil. Save me. But what he does is when God says, well, who told you you were naked? Who, 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 why are you running? Why are you fleeing from me? Who told you this? He said, well, it's, it's the woman. You get, it's your fault. You put her here, right? I want to compare that story to a different story in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 follows immediately after Jesus' baptism, right before his, the beginning of his ministry. And you'll remember from that story, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, and as he's baptized in the Jordan River, a voice from heaven announces this profound truth. What is that profound truth? It announces, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, we read this in Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, right after hearing the voice of the Lord, Jesus is driven out by the Spirit to go into the wilderness and to be tempted. And here's what we read in verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I bet, I bet he was hungry. So, I, you know, I got to admit, I tried to fast this morning. I, try, I really tried to fast this morning. I did not eat all morning. And I walked in here and about Five minutes before the sermon, as we're singing the first song, my head started to swoon a little bit, and I was like, I better get a donut. Like, I, I, I can't do it. And that was like four hours, right? And eight hours last night. All right, so 40 days, 40 days of fasting, and there's Jesus. And what's going on here is the testing of Jesus, right? 
We just saw Adam and Eve's testing in the garden where they were filled, where they had everything that they could possibly need, have covered for them. And here is Jesus in the wilderness having fasted for 40 days. And he's about to be tested. There, there's these commercials that, that, that you'll see every once in a while. That usually they're battery commercials. And I, that's just what comes to mind when I think about them. The, you know, the Duracell battery. This is tested in the toughest conditions. It's, you know, negative 90 degrees outside. And this battery will still start for your car. Tested in the toughest conditions. Here's Adam tested, tested in the lightest conditions. And the ignition won't start. Ideal conditions. And he doesn't turn on. He doesn't get it. So now we have Jesus about to be tested in the toughest conditions, fasting for 40 days, and let's see how it unfolds. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, same tactic, same tactic. If you are the Son of God, I know you just heard God say that, but if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes verbatim, no addition, no subtraction from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. And the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, because I can, I can quote scripture too, Jesus, it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, I can, I can quote scripture too, test God. If you really are, he'll certainly do this for you. Jesus responds, he says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting verbatim, Deuteronomy 6, 16. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these will be given to you if you fall down and worship me. Just bend the knee to me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Quoting verbatim, Deuteronomy 6.13. You see, in each instance, the attack of Satan is on the veracity of the Word of God. And in each instance, what comes out in this testing is verbatim the Word of God and trust in what it says. So the test concludes, and in the conclusion of this test, we have angels who come and minister to Jesus. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. See, Jesus' testing here is necessary. It's necessary. See, what God is doing in both of these scenarios 
is he's putting Adam and Eve in the most ideal conditions possible. He's removing from them any possible excuse that could be external to them, that could be something that they could point to to blame something or someone else other than to point right back at themselves and say, it was me. And they fail. Meanwhile, Jesus is put into this condition where it could be argued. You remember what Satan did to Job? You know, Joe, Satan comes to, to God and he says, the world is a terrible place. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job, you know? What does Satan say? Well, that's only because you've blessed him so much. Of course, he loves you. You've given him everything that he could possibly want. Of course, he's going to love you. Look how good you've been to him. And here in this scenario, no. No. The harshest conditions possible. Certainly, anybody, 40 days fasting in the wilderness would be pretty close to death. Right? And Jesus passes the test. He passes the test. You know, here's the reality. Here's the point. Fasting induces suffering in us, and fasting reveals what is deep within us. Truth or falseness. The truth of the lie. It reveals that within us. I, you know, I'm fascinated by zombie movies and, and apocalypse movies. I don't know, maybe you are as well. But one of the things that's fascinating about the genre of movies is this. It removes, in most of those movies, one of the things that's obvious is that it removes the thin veneer of society, right? When you see kind of an apocalyptic, dystopian world, the thin veil of society is removed. And what happens? The depravity of man comes out. And oftentimes, this is very much associated with food. When people really get hungry, when they're starving, they will do terrible things to each other in order to get those basic necessities met, to get fed, right? And that, that's something, there's something very telling about that. That when you drain away all of the things, all the comforts of this world, when you, when you move the water level down a little bit, right, like a, like a lake that's draining, you start to see what lies below the surface, what's really there. And fasting does that. See, we can get away with a lot of things. We can appear to be great people in a lot of ways, but put us under stress, put us in difficult situations, and what's really below the surface begins to come out. When you fast, when we're fasting, lots of things will come out, okay? I guarantee you that if you decide, I'm going to fast, I'm going to start doing this. I'm convicted about this. I'm going to start fasting. When you do that, lots of things are going to come out. You're going to be angry. You're going to be angry. You're going to be hangry, right? You're going to be frustrated. You're going to become tired. And you're going to become lazy, right? 
You're going to see all these things about yourselves. You're, you're going to understand, you're going to be uncomfortable, and that uncomfortableness is going to come out in various ways. It will expose you. It will expose you. Which brings us to our passage here today, right? When we're talking from Matthew chapter 6, what does Jesus say? What is the modus operandi of the hypocrites who fast? What is it? He says about them, he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy, right? Like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their their fasting may be seen by others. What do they do? It hurts. This This is a painful thing that they're doing, and they want everybody to know exactly how painful it is so that everybody can understand exactly how spiritual they are. So I'm going to disfigure my face. This is so difficult. This is hard. This is so difficult. Pity me. Look at me. I'm doing this for this, for that. They disfigure their faces. They want to be seen by others. They want others to notice them. But Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward, the recognition of men. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. But your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, reward you. So what He is telling us here, if we want to do this practice, if we want to be fasters like Jesus was, although we're not going to be do 40-day fast, I guarantee you that, and I wouldn't recommend it. But if we want to fast like Jesus did, we don't do it for the horizontal level. The hypocrites do it to say, look at me. We do it. True fasting is when I look up at God. We do it to get a clear view of who He is. Because here's the point, the purpose of fasting, like prayer, is to remind us and submit us to our dependence on God. Fasting reminds us that we depend entirely on Him. The purpose of the pain, of the hunger, of the pit that we feel in our stomach is to remind us that we need something. We need something desperately. The anger, the frustration, the exhaustion, the laziness that will come out when we fast, the junk that will be exposed as the water level drops, reminds us that we need something. Fasting is a recognition that our need for God is far greater than our need for food. Far greater than our need for food. It is our greatest need. It is a prayer intensifier. Just as my friend, you know, as I was describing earlier, as he was suffering through the the various trials that he was going through, he was praying through them. And when it came to that point where he was experiencing the potential of a fatal condition, it intensified his prayer all the more. 
Because when you feel your mortality, what do you do? You cry out to God. You have no other choice but to cry out to God and to recognize your dependence on Him. So it is a prayer intensifier. How easy it is to gloss over. A prayer like, give us this day our daily bread when our bellies are full from lunch. Okay? We need God to give us our daily bread. We need forgiveness of sins. And we know when after we've committed the sin and we've been convicted by the Holy Spirit, that's when we pray. That's when that prayer takes on meaning, right? When that guilt is upon us. We know... We need deliverance from evil when we're going through the test. And so fasting is a way of intentionally undergoing an ordeal so that we can intensify our awareness of our dependence on God to answer prayer. Probably the most important passage about fasting in the New Testament is just a few chapters over in Matthew chapter 9. John, the Baptist, his disciples had been, you know, uh, the pre-runner to Jesus, right? John was there to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. And John's ministry was very aesthetic, ascetic, right? Asceticism is, a, you know, kind of a discipline. We're going to prepare our hearts. We're going to fast. We're going to pray because we know something big is about to happen. And so, John's disciples engaged in these practices knowing that something important was about to happen. And when John is in prison, after he's been thrown into prison, his, some of his disciples come to Jesus, and we read about this interaction here in Matthew chapter 9. And here's what we read about this. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do the, we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answers them, and He says, Here, here's the reason why. Here's why you're seeing this, this outcome. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the only reason why Jesus' disciples weren't fast, the only reason why this question was arising in the first place in Jesus' ministry was because... It was for that specific time why Jesus was there with them that there was no need for fasting. Jesus was there. But he tells John's disciples, look, this is for a short period of time because in a little bit I'm going to be taken away. And then what does it say? Then they will fast. There was no more convicting passage for me as I studied this this week than this because I don't fast. And what I've come to realize is that proper fasting, this is the point, proper fasting is both a result, it's both the result of a longing for Jesus to come back and a cause for further longing. We fast because we want His ministry. We want Him to return. We want Him to be here with us. And when we do fast, that discipline, as we develop that discipline, that longing grows stronger and stronger and stronger. 
even Jesus' fast for 40 days. I imagine one of the reasons, not only was it for his testing, but I'd imagine one of the reasons he was fasting this period of time was just great anticipation of his own ministry. He was ready. His hour had come. And that fasting was preparing his own heart for what he was about to do. So we should think about fasting more frequently than we do. And as we do that, I want to leave you with a few tips, just a few tips, helpful tips that I think will, will help you in this. And here they are. Number one, remember, it's God's idea. It's God's idea. His, it's His idea for us to fast. Number two, we should fast for a purpose, okay? Fast for a purpose. If you want your kids to come to know Christ, fast. If you want to be more self-disciplined, fast for it. If you want God to answer some prayer in your life that is pressing and important, fast for it. Have a purpose. Don't just do it because you want to feel pain. There's no joy in that. There's no purpose in that. There's, there's nothing to fasting if it's not connected to a higher purpose. And as you're fasting, examine your heart. Examine your heart. If you find yourself thinking, I'm just ready for this to be over, then there's something wrong. Something's coming out of you. But if you find yourself more focused on your purpose as you feel hunger, then something is going right. And you can, you can test your own heart in the midst of your fasting. Realize that your hunger serves you. It is a reminder of the purpose. You want your prayers answered more than you want lunch today. And if you don't, there's something wrong with your prayers. Finally, it can be modified. Fasting can be modified. I realize there's all kinds of medical conditions. There are all kinds of schedules and requirements and things that we go through. Even though we talked about fasting involves food, there, there are ways to modify it. There are ways to maybe just miss one meal. One meal can be a fast if it's intentionally and purposely done. You can just cut out certain foods if you need a balanced diet. It's fine. There are ways to do fasting that will fit with what everybody needs. Everybody can engage in this discipline, and I'm convinced after this week that we should. We should more often than we do. We should embrace fasting. We should embrace the suffering that comes along with it because we want to hear God's voice loudly. We want to hear Him more clearly. Let's pray.